One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com We have merch. Check out the AmericanGlutton.net shop. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, hats, and more. A number of people have come up to me wearing American Glutton merch, and nothing fills my heart with more pride than seeing somebody in one of these t-shirts. And I've been stopped on the street and asked where to get it when somebody sees me in an American Glutton hoodie. Well, you can get it all at the shop on AmericanGlutton.net. And my favorite t-shirt, yesterday it was tomorrow, right now, is up now Get it while supplies last. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show... Please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on the show, Dr. Richard Jacoby. He wrote the book Sugar Crush, and his upcoming book is called Unglued. Please enjoy. Dr. Richard Jacoby, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Well, thank you. I got a um, little gravelly voice here in Arizona. I slept with the windows open last night, excited because it was cool. It's under 100 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Just touching under 100 is cool. Uh, Yes, first day. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I want to talk about your first book, but also your your upcoming book. The first book is Sugar Crush. And I just want to know like what led you to that and what your what your directive is for people who are dealing with the ailments that you're finding. Well, it goes back a, a long time, really 50 years when I started thinking about this. The concept of sugar being a poison is really an old concept, but it really was not in our diet, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago. We were basically carnivores. So when I was in school in Philadelphia, um, I had an opportunity to be in a laboratory um, looking at um, the disease PKU, which is phenylketonuria. And I 
worked with Dr. Michael Sheff in Philadelphia at the Ben Franklin Clinic. And we fed the rats different chows, one of which was the carbohydrate, to see if their amino acids were affected, and they were. So that kind of gave me the bug in chemistry, biochemistry. And when I got in practice in here in Scottsdale, Arizona, I didn't really think about that that much. Uh, but in the 80s, I was asked by the Surgeon General of Taiwan to go there to figure out why they had diabetes. And that was 1981. So that's almost, that's 40 years ago. Time flies. Yeah. So I got there. Uh, Dr. Chu, uh, Luke Chu, he's, um, he was the Surgeon General. And I toured the country. The first question I asked him is, what is the Mandarin word for diabetes? And he said, well, we use the word, the Greek word, diabetes mellitus, which means to siphon off sweet water. And I thought that a little bit odd because what I found was really very low incidence of diabetes compared to the United States. But they were recognizing that they started to have a problem. Long story short, after three years, I said, I don't really see that much. Um, but I think it's your diet because the first fast food restaurant was 1979 in Taipei. And there I was in 1981, and they noticed the difference. So it was, to me, obviously in the food, I really didn't know what in the food was causing the problem. But it's so obvious, it's sugar. Uh, there's been a meta-analysis since then, lots of data. It's, it's sugar. It never, it never was fat as the fat hypothesis of, let's see, oh, no, I just hit the wrong button here, my, my back on there. Yeah, yeah, I see you. Okay, okay. So in the um, 60s, Ansel Keys, and I think you know this answer, he put the country on the track that cholesterol was the culprit. And Big Pharma stepped in and solved that problem with statin drugs. The USDA built the food pyramid with the help of the farmers to sell what they were selling, which was carbohydrates. And on the bottom of the pyramid, you see it's six to 11 helpings of carbohydrates a day. Well, if you do that, you can turn the country into di diabetic. And they did a good job if that was the intention. So fortunately, I was um, running the wound care center at Scottsdale Hospital about 35 years ago. And we were doing a lot of amputations, uh, traditional treatment for diabetic polyneuropathy, which is the disease of the lower extremity, which results in ulcerations, gangrene, things of that sort, and eventually amputation. That was the treatment. Actually, it still is. There are a million and a half amputations every year in, in the world, about 150,000 in the U.S. So <clears throat> Dr. Dellen, I was fortunate enough to run into him. He was giving a lecture on his treatment for treating that diabetic neuropathy. Now, he's a professor in neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. He's originally trained as a plastic surgeon. So he did the hand surgeons, um, the carpal tunnel and the ulnar tunnel and the elbow. And a patient in the 80s said to him, Dr. Dellen, why don't you fix my legs? Could you fix my arms? And he said, well, that's a different disease. He thought about it, went to the laboratory, lots of different experiments came up with the concept that the diabetic neuropathy of the lower extremity is the same as the upper extremity. Now, saying that to the average person, well, that makes perfect sense, but not to, not to the medical profession, which is perplexing because 
he trained me in about the year 2000. So it's, I mean, it's 20, almost a quarter of a century when you think about it. And we don't get amputations when we do that procedure. But Dr. Dellen's papers, although many in his textbooks, many, um, not well accepted because neuropathy is dominated by neurology. Neurologists are extremely bright people for sure, but they're not surgeons. And when I say that, uh, that gets a firestorm of pushback. What do you mean? You surgeons want to cut everything. Well, so, well, let's look at it from a more exterior viewpoint. And I like to say, uh, let's look at it through Dellen's lens, Dr. Dellen's. So he taught me to use magnification when I'm doing surgery, because you can't see these tiny nerves unless you do, or a microscope, which I do both. And lo and behold, even though I knew everything about nerves, I really knew nothing until I put Dellen's lens on. And I read his textbook. He trained me. And it's very, very obvious. So, I mean, if you take a wire like I have here, what diabetic neuropathy is really a compression neuropathy. So the nerve in the wrist, which is called the median nerve, and it innervates this muscle, and here's its function. You decompress this nerve, meaning you take the, the tightness, the scar tissue off of it, and it will start to function again. That's, that's a seminal moment for Dr. Dellen and for me. So when I put the lens on, Dellen's lens on, and I saw that and I did the surgery and the feeling came right back on patients that were supposed to get amputations. So I started to spread the word and... Um, I said to Dr. Dellen, I think this is probably 2005, I said, no one's understanding this, your concept. I think there's more to it. And he said, he said, why don't you figure it out? I said, well, um, I'll just do that. I didn't think I could, but I did. So I thought, well, okay, I'm not reading the same literature. Because I, 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 I do podiatric surgery uh, all day long. But now this new concept of nerves as a compression neuropathy, it really fascinated me. So a per- I, got- I just want to be clear, a person with nerve damage in their feet that would typically require an amputation, you could relieve that. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and avoid amputation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, wow. but you have to have Dellen's lens. And what I mean by that is you have to understand what he's seeing through his magnification with the knowledge that he has. That's a very important concept. But I mean, look, I, forgive me. I have a daughter who's type one di- who has type one diabetes. So, and she's had it for 14 years and her, her, her A1C is pretty, pretty good. And she's doing okay, but I'm not going to lie. This is for sure a fear I have of her future. And I would think that if there's any alternative to lopping off a foot or even a toe, people would be clamoring for it. And you're telling me this wasn't or hasn't been <laughs> even like widely looked at? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's actually it's the opposite. So there's a philosopher by name of Schopenhauer, and he says all new theories go through, through three phases. First, they're ridiculed. 
then they get angry and persecute. And then the third phase is, oh, yeah, that's obvious. We all knew that. Okay. Let's go back. Let's go back to the 15th century uh, guy by the name of Giordano Bruno. And he was a monk at the Vatican. And he woke up one day and said, you know what? I think I have a new theory that the earth is not the center of the universe. This is around Galileo's time. So he goes to the rest of the uh, monks at the Vatican and said, you know, they tell us the story. He said, oh, my God. You know, Bruno, the last name is Bruno. Uh, Bruno, we're going to put you down in the basement for about three years. Give you a little slap therapy, you know? Yeah. And see what you think. And he bring, bring him up. And I uh, said, so what do you think now? He says, you know what? Not only do I think the Earth is not the center of the universe, I don't think the sun is either. And I think there's other galaxies. Oh, Jesus. No pun intended there. Took him outside, lit a fire, and burned him at the stake. So the Vatican has never apologized for that. Now, we all know that he was correct now. They didn't apologize. Uh, and that's the phase to go through. So Dellen's going through that phase. They ridiculed him. Now, here's probably the brightest guy not, not probably. He is the most articulate person on the planet for this disease process. And I had the fortune to study with him. So I took it back to Scottsdale and I got the same treatment. What are you doing? Uh, you know, the general surgeons, they don't have that skill set that I have. The neurologists for sure don't have that skill set. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Even if they understood what I just said is a compression neuropathy, they're not surgeons. So they couldn't fix it. They only can write a prescription, and that prescription is for medicine. That's what they do. Uh, and, and they control that process. If you had, like your daughter, diabetic, type 1, and we'll talk about that, type 1, type 2, type 3, type 50 in detail, if you like, today, so they're going to control the narrative. You know, that's a big, big subject today, controlling the narrative. So big, where do you get your narrative from prior to podcast? It's the television that's 80% controlled by Big Pharma. So every talking head is paid for by them. So if you <laughs> if you're going to go against the narrative, which is, pharmaceutical drug like Pfizer's Lyrica for this for this problem, you're not going to get published. I, I don't know anything about Lyrica. What is the Lyrica specifically for nerve damage? Well, they would say it is, but it isn't. So <laughs> this is FDA, which, by the way, is the Food and Drug Administration. That's a kind of conflict of interest right there. So so. Um, Lyrica is a cult, its generic name is pregabalin. So what is it? Um, it's a derivative of another drug called gabapentin. So those drugs were used for epilepsy. Isn't gabapentin also a Parkinson's drug? Yeah, yeah. So they it, it was originally for epilepsy. Right. So people were developing diabetic polyneuropathy. So they said, okay, what's available? And they they found that what is happening? There we go. Um, they found that that was an effective drug to mitigate the symptoms of diabetic polyneuropathy, 
numbness, tingling, burning, that sort of thing. And it works in the brain. So you don't feel the problem. Right. So gabapentin was very widely used. And then they came out with the second drug, Lyrica, which does a similar process. But it does nothing. And let me emphasize that nothing for the nerve. It so the walks. nerve continues to get scarred. The compression increases. You, you just don't able. feel it. Now, see, if you're on the FDA panel, you just answer the question. It's very logical. And you'll say, well, if you're taking Lyrica, and this, and I put it into five phases, part of my uh, scenario. In the beginning, diabetic neuropathy is very painful. Somebody's standing on your nerve. Hey, get off. Yeah. Well, if I give you that drug, you go, oh, that feels great. So you'll never get off stepping on that nerve, so to speak. Yeah. I've, and, met, I've medically had a nerve touch twice in my life that I was awake for. Once I had to get stitches in my face and I had a, you could, I could actually see the nerve. It looked like a white hair across my forehead. Yeah. And they, they had to move it to put these stitches in. And it was the worst, single worst jolt of pain I've ever had in my life. And then the second time, I can't take narcotic drugs and I had to have my bicep repaired. So they were turning off my shoulder in my, I think it's called the brachial plexus. Yes. And they put a catheter in there <coughs> and they were moving it around until it touched the nerve. And the second it touched the nerve, my whole body leapt off the table. It does not feel good to have those nerves messed with. You're absolutely correct. It's an, it's an amazing um, problem. But let's go back to nerves and what, what's their function. Their function is to deliver a signal from the receptor to the brain that it's hot. Pull your hand off. So the body has lots of different receptor, hot, cold, light touch, uh, pressure, etc. When So let's get into the chemistry of, of nerves. So let's go back to my challenge, my quest. Dr. Dallin says, you figure it out. So I find an article written by Dr. John Cook, who is a cardiologist, by the way, by training, but he has a PhD in vascular biology. And he wrote an article in circulation in year 2004. And I read it and I thought, well, gee, this may have something to do with Dr. Dallin's theory. No, I don't go through his theory in a second. And I texted him and I said, hey, Dr. Cook, great article. It's called the Uber marker, by the way. That word was the only word I didn't know in the article. Uh, Uber, what the hell does that mean? Okay, it means universal cause. And a very good article. And so I texted him and I said, hey, Dr. Cook, uh, great article. I think it's got something to do with my buddy down at Johns Hopkins. He calls me on the phone two hours later, which is very, very unusual. And he says, love your idea. Uh, I did. He said he did a literature search and no one thought of the connection. Come up to Stanford, which I did, and let's work on your, your problem, your hypothesis. So I did, and um, I took his molecule, which is called asymmetric dimethyl arginine. So people always say, oh, my God, what the hell does that mean? Okay, so let's unpack that as the popular phrase today. So arginine, which is a semi-essential amino acid, 
Remember, I was working on those way back in Philadelphia, amino acid. So methyl group, dimethyl means two methyl groups, and normally they're on either side. Asymmetric means the methyl group, both of them are on one side. That's what it is. What's it do? Well, it blocks the nitric oxide pathway. Nitric oxide dilates the blood vessel. And if ADMA, which is asymmetric dimethyl arginine, is elevated, then you can't convert arginine to nitric oxide and you'll get constriction of the blood vessel. That's what I discovered. So we did a literature search on that. No one had done that. But then uh, there were a couple papers that say, it said that I wasn't correct. I looked at the papers and I said, well, they didn't do the experiments correctly. So Dr. Cook says, well, qu quit your practice, work with me full-time at Stanford. I said, well, you know, my kids are like 10. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm a clinician. I, I know science, yes, but I'm not like they are. There's world-class scientists. I said, I'll write a book called Sugar Crush. I will explain all this from my point of view and let the real scientists figure it out. What well, they did a couple of years ago, ADMA, that molecule, does block the nitric oxide pathway. But the important thing I was saying is when I did those experiments, ADMA, that molecule, is not only elevated in diabetic neuropathy, it's elevated in everything, like MS, um, ALS, every, everything you can think of. And it, it just makes sense. I mean, if you're eating, quote unquote, and we'll get into the chemistry of that, you're going to have a systemic effect, not just localized to one nerve. That, that doesn't make sense. So that's what the book is in Sugar Crush. Then the other epiphany I had was, well, wait a minute. All these diseases are the same. They're just different locations. But let me go back to the chemistry that Dr. Dellen applied to this process. So there are three chemical reactions. Number one, the Maillard reaction. And what that means is that sugar plus a protein causes an effect. And that effect is shrinkage of the protein. So think of the nerve wrapped in um, shrink wrap. You heat it up, add some chemicals, and it compresses. This is what we want to do to the outside of a steak. Yes. Okay. Now you got the outside. You're cooking your nerves. Right. You're cooking them. That's all you're doing chemically. Yeah. And the term is non-enzymatically. Number two, polyol pathway. Polyol um, pathway is the chemistry inside the nerve. And when, a, when sugar gets inside the nerve, there are enzymes that break it down, like aldose reductase inhibitor. I mean, it gets, I don't think it's complicated. I think it's complex. That's a better word. It is complex. So when the sugar is breaking down to sorbitol, which is now alcohol sugar, it overloads the system and they can't get rid of the sorbitol. So sorbitol brings water into the nerve and it causes it to swell. I mean, it's pretty simple in my mind. So and you, you get pressure out. again. Right. So you get a shrink wrap on your nerve, and the nerve itself is swelling. I, I don't know what are the words applied to this process other than compression. Right. Now, let me – so then I said, well, there's another pathway. There is. Now, the Nobel Prize for medicine was only 
given for to Murad and and uh, and uh, two other fellows to identify that nitric oxide even existed. So I'm theorizing in 2005, and I said, oh, I can see why Dr. Dellen, when he wrote his papers, didn't address that because it wasn't known because he started in the 80s. So I just took the new chemistry, and I, I didn't discover the molecule. That was the Nobel Prize. I just applied that concept to this problem. Well, that was I wrote that book. Uh, that book came out in 2015. And um, when you read the book, I'm, I every once in a while I read the book. Somebody will call me and and criticize, and I go back. Oh, wait a minute! I said all that stuff. I can tell you what page I said it on. Even COVID, page twenty five of my book, it explains the biochemistry of why we had that COVID problem. And I, I mean, that's a separate issue here, but no. But I mean, to your point, a lot of the people that were passing away from it had type to diabetes, right? I mean, a huge portion of them. Wow, you you're nailed it. You nailed it. Now, you know that. I know that. How come Dr. Fauci doesn't know that? I didn't even think that was a controversial take. I thought that was pretty open. Like um, the comorbidity factor was, was massive and type 2 diabetes was one of the leading comorbidities. Yes. So let's... So it's really it's complex in the in the the viewpoint. So let's go back to the hypothesis of cholesterol is causing the problem. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when I visited with Dr. Cook the first time, now remember, he's a uh, cardiologist by training. He's got a PhD in vascular biology at Stanford, where all this work has been done. Syndrome X, which was the 
at one time it was syndrome X. It was called that because the problem was unknown. That's what X means, unknown. So what the hell's going on here, Dr. Raven, who is a endocrinologist? So there is another point of view. He's looking at the immune system, which is effective for sure, but he's looking at it as he's looking at the effect from the immune system, syndrome X, and then it became, well, maybe insulin is involved in here, and there's a quartet of symptoms, obesity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, etc. And then finally, Dr. Cook's laboratory at Stanford figured all this stuff out. It's pretty simple, sugar. So that, but the cholesterol hypothesis is still ongoing. So let's go, I asked this question to Dr. Cook. The first question I think I ever asked him was, because um, I said, I'm, I'm confused about that. I really wasn't. I just wanted to be somewhat uh, diplomatic. I said, Dr. Dr. Cook, I'm confused about this um, uh, process. And he explained and said, well, the lining of the blood vessel, which is the endothelium, uh, is like Teflon, meaning smooth. And it is. It's perfectly smooth. When you eat sugar, it makes it like Velcro. Cholesterol is a signaling molecule from your liver that goes through the bloodstream to that area of inflammation and it sticks to it and that's called plaque and is that every time is the purpose to try to smooth it out again what yeah i'm going to use a term uh terminology i when i grew up when we had a defect like in a you know you're a kid you kick your fist through the through the wall you know as we do occasionally and you had to repair that and you put spackle on there do you know that term sure. spackle yeah there you go that's plaque Right. So somebody somehow is causing an injury to a smooth surface and cholesterol is that spackle that smooths it out. Well, if you keep doing it, it's going to get bigger and bigger. You get more and more plaster. And we call that atherosclerosis. It's not caused by cholesterol. Cholesterol is there to repair. It's caused by sugar. So let's go back to the 1800s guy by the name of Verkal. So he asked that question, actually, at that time. And he opened the artery, looked at it. He spoke five languages, by the way, one of which was Greek. And he said, what's this gunk here? And gunk in Greek is athro. Mm -hmm. And what's hardened athro? Atherosclerosis, hardened gunk. Now, I would say to you and anybody else, that's not a disease. That's a process, an observed process. And he did. And I actually let a couple... A couple months ago, I went back and read his original paper. He actually said it's inflammation. He didn't know what was causing the inflammation. So let's segue. And it's easy to criticize. I don't mean to criticize. These are brilliant, brilliant people. And they, they only had the tools they had to work with. In the 1860s, so let's talk about how you look through a lens and see if I can put this together. The camera was just coming into vogue. So they could take a picture of what they saw. And they could share it with other scientists. That's a major improvement. So a lot of these diseases were shared that way and named. So like say Charcot, because Charcot has a lot to do with the uh, diabetic foot, it's called the Charcot foot. Also MS, he was looking at that. And he was a neurologist in uh, Paris in the same time, 1860s. And he looked at a brain and said, um, what are these white spots on a patient who had loss of feeling in their feet, by the way, and, and eventually passed away, and he did the autopsy. 
So he noticed these little white spots in the brain and the cervical spine. He named it multiple, here's that word again, oh, sclerosis, wow. MS. Because there were a I bunch mean, of white spots. You got it. And what is it? It's scar tissue from the inflammatory effects of sugar and mixed with other chemicals in a different location. Uh, okay, I, guess- I, I have one question. Is there anything to the dose makes the poison here? Absolutely. That's okay. in my new book, Unglued. Okay. I make a big point of that. That was Paracelsus. So he was, I think it was right, 1400s. He's wandering around Europe, and he came up with that theory. The dose is the poison. So that takes us right to glucose, because that's a big controversy. Is glucose a poison? Yes. If it's used in excess. Right. Why, why did you ask that question? That is uh, uh, actually the seminal question in my book. Well, here's why I ask it. Because, listen, I got to tell you my story a little bit just so you understand it. I come from the point of view. I never had, I was never diabetic or pre-diabetic. I was just very obese. I was 550 pounds. And I just wanted to lose weight. And through my childhood and my adolescence and even my own, when I was out of my parents' house and going on diets for myself, I was able to overeat fat. I was. I wasn't worried about my arteries. I wasn't worried about cholesterol. I didn't have high cholesterol, but I would, I could, when I was put on diets that were eat whatever you want, just don't eat carbohydrates. I would still overeat and wouldn't lose all the weight I needed to lose. When I got super into moderation, and I will tell you this, sugar, refined sugar is not a part of my diet at all, but some carbohydrates are. And I know that if I have zero carbohydrates, I don't feel as good, but I also feel way worse if I have too many. Like There is a a balance for me that I have to find. So that's why I wanted to ask you that. Well, I think it's a very, very good question. Um, And I devote a chapter to that. So why is that? So let's go to another guy, uh, Don Johansson. He's probably most well-known for discovery of Lucy, our first primate. And this is a little, not a trick, but I call these guys up, you know. I said, hey, Don, great paper, which I did read his stuff. And um, we got to be friends, uh, professional friends. And he invited me to a lecture in New York at the uh, Explorers Club. And the lecture was, what did Lucy eat? So late, if, if you, and I'm not saying everything is true here, but these are anthropologists, well-trained, but they have, everybody has a different point of view on evolution. But let's just take his point of view. If Lucy is our first primate 3.2 million years ago, what did she eat? Reasonable question. Well, she was hanging out in the trees. She's eating, um, you know, leaves. She, she was a herbivore. When she got out of the trees and tasted meat, fat, bugs, that sort of thing, and started to develop, because of fat, a larger brain frontal cortex, and then the more meat she ate, it gave her an advantage over apes. 
Because apes, eat, they just sit and eat uh, bamboo all day like gorillas. So with that change in diet, that created change in morphology. So the rib cage, when you start eating meat, you don't you have to get that food out of your digestive tract quickly, where carbs take like three days to process. So that was a fundamental difference. So the larger the brain, the brain developed by the gut getting smaller. And it changed the morphology. So she was able to get her knuckles off the ground, upright stance, bipedal motion, walking, and she could see at a right angle. So she could see the horizon. And then she made instruments and was able to hunt. And you would hunt for meat and fat that made her superior. I mean, that's the theory. And then here we are today. But along the way, we still like sugar. Back to your point of the dose. Well, sugar was still present in that diet. And there's two ways to get sugar, glucose in particular. That is gluconeogenesis. So we can manufacture glucose from fat and protein. We only need, however, one teaspoon at any one time, which is four grams. So anything above that is toxic. Wow. So I'm going to... So I'm going to segue over to your your point, which is a terrific point, is that there's a thing called the glycocalyx. I don't know if you've heard of that word. Mm -mm. So it kind of answers your question. The glycocalyx is the covering on the endothelium. And it's so small, you don't even see it. But it makes that even more slippery because it's, it's basically a sugar molecule. So it has to be perfectly in balance. If it is, then nutrients can pass through the endothelium, produce nitric oxide, and dilate the vessel. If it's too thick, then that process doesn't work that well. So the balance, again, is very important. So those things were not known. They are known now, but why do we not know all this stuff? We're back to big pharma because they want a drug. All these drugs that we're talking about today, and we'll get into that if we have time, the monoclonal antibodies are all designed to allow you to eat more sugar. Right. So Met the Metformin and insulin and the other one oh. you mentioned, the gabapentin one that's designed for it, all of it. Everything. And that's the formula, how to monetize a disease. Why would anybody put up a billion dollars to try to figure out, quote unquote, the cure, unless they got a trillion dollars back? Right. Just simple business. And that's what's wrong with the whole medical system, in my opinion. So we got the chemistry. We have Dellen's theories. I put those together and then I extrapolated that, that all these inflammatory issues that are caused by sugar are just names of different locations where that happens. Then we get into epigenetics to kind of explain this sort of thing. So epig means above the genomes. So let's say, well, um, your daughter, let's, let's start with that, with the type 
want diabetes. So she is carrying genes that make it difficult for her to process sugar. So if and they're called alleles. So they're just groups of genes sitting on top of the genome. So if you have a lot of genes that you take one teaspoon of sugar, you got that quote unquote disease. You, on the other hand, you let's say you could eat um, 10 teaspoons of sugar. You don't have those alleles. That doesn't happen to you. But you may have alleles sitting on top of something expresses for MS, the vagus nerve, and you get that itis. Right. My epiphany, I had gallbladder disease. I did too. Oh, I did well, have that. Okay. That's, that's a perfect segue. <clears throat> so when I was doing my research, or actually prior, I had a gallbladder attack. And... Um, got an ultrasound, I had a stone, and I had surgery. And I thought, well, you know, my mother had gallbladder disease. And I thought, okay, that's genetic. Well, it is, in a sense, it's epigenetic. You carry the gene. I was eating a lot of carbohydrates at that time. <laughs> that was 35 years ago. My what I did every day, I did surgery in the morning, never ate breakfast. Coffee always had cream and sugar in there, there's probably bagels or whatever around. So surgery was over around one, went to the cafeteria, ate a big carbohydrate meal in the hospital, saw patients, then I went to the gym. I I like to lift weights in those days. Was I strong? Oh yeah, I was real strong. Um and we were just talking about this. This is funny. I, I could never bench press over 200 pounds. So one of my colleagues, ah, you're just exercising too much, which he was right. So I, on my 50th birthday, I bench pressed 315 pounds. Wow. And I was so excited, but I couldn't hit a golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was just too big. And But then I realized, wait a minute. That, you know, just exercising, eating what you want is the wrong formula. I mean, if you want to lift a lot of weights, yeah, that works, but it's not good for you. So my gallbladder is taken out. And I'm in the cafeteria at the hospital. And one of the family doctors said, well, what happened to you? And I said, well, I had my gallbladder at. And it, it, it's just funny how information, it depends on what point in time and what you're thinking about. He says to me, that's because... And he's being facetious, and he is a big guy, ex-football player, nice guy, but he is big. And he's got a pile of food on his plate. He knew he knew the uh, cafeteria chef's name. You know, he knew him by first name. You know, he was into food. And he says to me, "Well, that's because the gallbladder. You don't exercise your gallbladder enough. You got to eat more." <laughs> And, and I laughed just like you did. And I went, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's right because I never ate breakfast. So you know how you, your mind works? So I go, oh, yeah, maybe that's true. Okay. So that idea stuck in my mind. Then I ran into Dr. Dellum, and he's telling me that nerves are being compressed. And I went, huh, okay, maybe my, the gallbladder, which is the vagus nerve, 
maybe that is a problem. Now, remember, gallbladder, what do they tell you not to eat? Fats. Fat. Yeah. Yeah, there's almost a million gallbladder excisions a year in the United States. Don't eat fat. But if you don't eat fat, what are you going to eat? Well, I also, I got mine removed. I don't have a gallbladder anymore. I just have a steady stream of gall, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So let's let's go through the mechanism. I don't have my gallbladder either. What is it? It's a muscle innervated by a nerve. And when you eat fat, it stimulates that to empty through a duct into your intestine. That's what it does. So now they're telling me not to eat fat. Well, if you don't eat fat, you're going to eat carbohydrates. It's hard to lose weight. So um, when the quest was given to me by Dr. Dellen, figure this out, I picked up a book called Diabetic Neuropathy by, you'll like this name, uh, his Canadian, he was at uh, Mayo Clinic, probably the most well-known neurologist in the world. And I had to get, so I read his book and I'll just set you up for this. So I read his book, which is very good from a scientific standpoint, but very boring. That's not for, uh, it, it's good for insomniacs. Just, it'll put you to sleep. But he said a couple things that were amazing. Number one, people with gallbladder disease have a 50%, 50% chance of going on to get di- diabetes. And I read that, I go, wait a minute, I have my gallbladder out. And I'm in the clinic, and I understand I'm in the clinic. Hi, Mr. Jones, how you doing? What can I do for you today? Well, I get this horrible smell coming out of my foot. Well, let me go through your history. You're taking a lot of Lyrica, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I see you had a heart attack 25 years ago. Uh, oh, you had your gallbladder out. And, I, and he takes his shoe off, and the stench is, of course, horrible. And he's got gangrene. Oh, I said, we'll work you up for diabetes, which he had. And a lot of patients will say, oh, I got diabetes in the hospital. Got diabetes in the hospital. No, you, we discovered you had diabetes. So I got this running in the back of my mind with the gallbladder. And I'm saying, Jesus, wait a minute. Is that me 30 years later? Because I'm doing the same diet, you know, it's carbs. And I think of this doctor friend of mine saying, you don't eat enough. Well, wait a minute. Gallbladder is a muscle innervated by a nerve. The lower extremity, nerve, muscle, function. Nerve, muscle, function. Fat, good. Carbs, bad. Sugar, function. You can't empty your gallbladder because it doesn't completely contract. So, and it's cholesterol again, by the way, which is not a cause, it's an effect. So that cholesterol rolls in and solidifies and, bec- and becomes a stone. That's what a gallstone is. Right. And it blocks the duct. So you see how we have the effect and cause all screwed up here. Yeah. It's really simple. It's simple. It's, it's sugar, not fat. You right. need fat. You're a carnivore. In living in a civilization that loves sugar, and you can get it every day. So that was an epiphany for me. But let me go back to the interesting point here that I thought was kind of funny. 
And so I'm, I'm working with a neurologist and he is Mayo, Mayo Clinic trained. And I see the name and it's spelled D-Y-C-K. And I had to give a lecture and I go, hmm, how do you pronounce that one? So I call up my friend. I said, his name was Jeff. I said, Jeff, uh, do you know this guy, D-Y-C-K? And he says, yeah, I trained with him at Mayo. I said, <laughs> it's a sensitive word. I said, how do you pronounce that? Because I don't know, it could be Dick or Dyke. He says, it's Dick. Oh, oh wow. thank you. I, yeah, I said, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mispronounce that. Not in this society. Right. Anyway. I feel like that's a more tolerable word today anyway. Uh, yeah, see how the words are. So anyway, I said, by the way, what's his first name? Peter. Peter <laughs> Dick. And by the way, he has a, a son, Junior. So we have, and he's a neurologist as well. So we have Big Dick and Little Dick. So let's go there. Um, funny, yes. But the book is terrific. Gallbladder. He says a couple other things in the book as well, which is really important to the story. One of the things he really emphasized, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. And our diet in the Western world is very high in seed oils and omega-6 fatty acids. And, and in chemistry, this is always um, not fascinating me, but it's such a little tiny change. So let's give your audience just a quick rundown of why you would say omega-3 versus omega-6 and a profound effect. So you count the carbons from right to left. The third carbon, one, two, three, double bonds, omega-3. Why are they called omega You know, they got to make some nomenclature. So that's Greek for uh, notation. That's omega-3, four, five, six, another double bond. But that simple chemistry change is huge. So omega-6 is inflammatory. And then there's a little uh, enzyme called delta-6 saturate, desaturase, which is another simple thing. And they add carbons as you build this molecule. If you go down the omega-6 side, it's inflammatory. Go down the omega-3 sides, it's anti-inflammatory. Just by eating just a tiny little difference of food, the dose is the poison. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I do find people vilify omega-6s, and I understand that they are inflammatory. I also understand they're in so much that we consume today, and so we are over-consuming them. But they're also in meat, so you can't be a carnivore and, ah, and get rid go. of omega-6s. Yeah, let's go right there. So that interests me, the concept. So Boyd Eaton, that's his name, uh, which is a great name to remember. Eaton. What are you eating, Boyd? Right. And uh, so he wrote a book on the Paleolithic diet. And he was from Emory University. with, And he wrote a book with an anthropologist. The short of that is they looked at caves and went back 10,000 years. What did we eat? Well, the ratio of three to six was one to one. Wow. One to one. Now it's about 25 to one inflammatory. You got to read that whole book to get that answer. 
So remember Boyd. What's Boyd Eden? Um, but a fundamental issue because of the cell membrane. Now we have cell membrane. When you have the cis form, that's a chemical term, so it's haphazard. So when you have the hydrogen attaching to the carbohydrates in a haphazard manner, it's like a steel wool kind of look. So when you push a molecule through, there's plenty of space. So less energy to push the glucose molecule through. When it's in the transform, like Venetian lines where it's tightly packed, you can get the, car, uh, the insulin into the cell or glucose into the cell, but you can't get it out. So the metabolites stay in there. So that's cellulite, so to speak. So the, all these issues are very important because they're highly balanced back to your hypothesis. The dose is the poison. So now we have two processes. We have excess of carbohydrate, sugar, glucose, and excess omega six fatty acids because we're eating seed oil that's that's inflammatory that's that process yeah so now we have dysregulation of our not only of our immune system but the bio the physiology of the cell itself so when you start to put all these things together it, it you can see the pattern it's evolving epigenetics cellular biology go inside the cell you're metabolizing you have a choice fat or carbohydrates and you can you can do both um most americans are eating carbs they're metabolizing that and they're producing energy atp for sure but that machine is really geared to fatty metabolism so that's what we, we should be in ketosis, which is the term for that. But you can burn both. So I kind of look at a, a car, uh, just to kind of give a metaphor for that. So this, I was thinking about this, and I'm putting gas in my car, and uh, ethanol, 10% ethanol. And I'm thinking, huh, ethanol, why do we do that? So I did a deep dive on that. Well, let's go back to Iowa. I-O-W-A. Uh, this is where it all starts. So they grow corn, genetically modified corn, and uh, they're making, they make two things there, ethanol to put in your car from corn or high fructose corn syrup made from corn to put in your body. Now, here's why, and I ask that question, why don't you, if it's so good, ethanol is so good, why don't you have 100%, right? Well, if you did, the car would absolutely rust out and be unusable right. in a short period of time. It would oxidize. Huh. But over here to the, the human body, 80% of the fuel going into the body in the form of high fructose corn syrup is also doing exactly the same thing. It's being oxidized, which would, in biology we call free radicals, and it's unraveling the genome. Back to the epigenetics, expression, boom, and that's the disease. So wait a minute. Why are we doing that? Let's, let's go back to Iowa again. Now, the good people of Iowa, my ex, by the way, is from Iowa. You hate people from Iowa. No, I don't. But I do hate what you're doing to people and not knowing it. So 
high fructose corn syrup is made out of obviously corn, but how is it made? It's made in a chemical process. They put mercury in there to use the chemical to activate the sodium hydroxide chemical reaction to separate the sugars. Then they make high fructose corn syrup. Why do they want that? Well, because it's a liquid form of sugar, so you can add it to anything. And they do. And it's addicting. And it's killing people. But how do they grow that stuff? Well, let's deep dive that one. Well, we have the concept of genetically modified organisms, which is GMOs, made by Monsanto, now bear. Well, why? How's that? What's that process? Well, they take a gene, gene splice the seed, so that when you spray Roundup on the product, it'll kill everything around it except for the corn itself. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ingenious, for sure. Dangerous, absolutely. But when they passed it through the FDA, remember the Food and Drug Administration, they said, no, it's perfectly safe. Well, it is when you look at it from a certain point of view. The glyphosate does not get into the human body directly. But the organisms, the bacteria that live in your gut, yes. So here's how this little magic act works. Glyphosate is, um, they took glycine, we're back to amino acid again. And that's the most common amino acid, by the way. And they took a phosphate molecule and they stuck it in that space. That's, That's really the crux of the argument here. Well, when the bacteria eats that stuff, it changes the microbiome. We call that dysbiosis and literally sends a message up the vagus nerve to your hippocampus in your brain and says, 
get me more sugar. It's sending a message. You're not asking for more sugar. Your microbiome is asking for more sugar. And telling your subconscious through the hippocampus where the memory center is, I want more sugar. I'm going to kill you. Okay. I'm going to make your day really bad. It does get uncomfortable. It does, does it? But where's that thought come from? So Stephanie Seneff, mother gal, that's my theory. So she, her field is um, biology, chemistry, probably one of the brightest people on the planet. So she, she wrote a lot of articles. So I didn't understand the shikimate pathway, which is explaining that biochemistry. So what did I do? Hey, Steph, <laughs> I text her and I said, can you help me walk me through that biochemistry? And she's just a beautiful human being. She took me under her wing. We had many conversations. She sent me lengthy emails and explained all this stuff to me. And so that's part of the puzzle of dysbiosis, diabetic neuropathy, and all this stuff when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together. So that I, that's that's essentially what I did. I mean, there's many other doctors that are involved in this. Uh, Dr. Filler, from, he's a Harvard graduate, brilliant guy, and Dr. Hamlin, also at Harvard, taught me a lot of how to image these, image these things through neurography, MRI neurography, and also to treat it with nitric oxide using red light therapy is, by the way, a good technique. So what I did was just looked at all the dots, put them all together, and came up with a theory that this is a com- global compression theory. So the compression of the median nerve or the posterior tibial nerve in the foot or the vagus nerve, it doesn't matter. It's all the same chemistry, epigenetics, and those itises are the result of this whole dysbiosis syndrome. Now, when I explain this to doctors, well, here's a funny one. So the this guy's name is uh, Shai Rosen. He's out of Israel, down at the University of Texas. He took on the uh, challenge to actually disprove Dr. Dellen's theory of that, that surgical procedure and tested against standard of care, Lyrica, uh, did a sham surgery, meaning that he made an incision on one leg and did the real surgery on the other leg. You imagine being in this study, right? And tracked these people for 10 years, about 80% efficacy with the real surgery, Dr. Dellen's surgery, standard of care, no improvement. But the placebo actually was a little higher than the standard of care. That was was confusing. People who just got a cut on their leg. Yes. Maybe that relieved some of the pressure anyway. Well, I think what happens, there's that'll bring us right into the stem cell solution and uh, unglued, how to get unglued. So I had seen that Phenomena because a lot of people, and I've done thousands of these. I would do the surgery and I do one leg at a time. I said, give us some time. A, I want to make sure it works. It doesn't work on everybody, about 85% effective. And then if you're satisfied, we'll do the other leg. Occasionally, the patient will say, you know what? My other leg feels better. Right. I said, well, what the hell's going on with this? So about 15 years ago, I started doing stem cell research on my own and came up with the idea that the stem cells, and that's a whole other subject, by the way, but it is in my new book. So we have like 500 to 600 growth factors in the stem cell world. 
And I think when you do the sham surgery, you're releasing some of these growth factors of your own, and it gets into the circulation, actually helps the opposite leg. Right. But I can't, I can't prove that. But I think that's probably what's happening. So back to Dr. Rosen's paper. So they, they won't print it in New England Journal or JAMA or the, you know, the big journals because they thought the placebo effect was too high. I said, well, wait a minute. You're really almost telling people that this is the solution and they yeah. won't print it. Gee, I wonder who controls that. Mm. Yeah. See where, see where I'm going here? I get yes. it. I, it all, it, it is a big circular thing. And unfortunately, that is the country we live in. You can buy sugar at the gas station, at Best Buy, at Home Depot. Every point of commerce has a little fix of sugar for you. Even sugar is available at MD Anderson's Cancer Treatment Center when you're getting the IV for your cancer. There's yeah. a bowl of sugar. It's wild. Now, this is all fascinating. I can't wait to read your next book. You've given me a lot to think about, and I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate you having me and tolerating my horse voice today. I thought you sounded great. It sounded great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Have a okay. great day. You too. Bye-bye. And now for the Q&A. Today's question comes from Tony. Hi, Tony. Tony says, I have struggled with my eating my entire life and was picked on terribly at school as a kid. Still stuck with that mindset of the fat little girl everyone hated. I'm 53 and it's getting harder to resist processed snacks. And the more I mess up, the more I mess up. Need help breaking the cycle. Yeah. Processed snacks are a bitch. 53. I don't know if Tony has kids or there are kids in the house or who else Tony lives with. And, you know, processed snacks are hard for me too. I've gotten to the point where we ha I have a wife and kids and they eat processed snacks from time to time. And I literally now don't think of that as food. It's just, I'm never, ever going to touch that. But it did take a while, and there was certainly a, a period of time where we didn't have processed snacks in the house because otherwise I would just eat them. And so, you know, if you're if you're saying to me that you are leaving your house to go buy processed snacks, then you have to like take it a step earlier. But if 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 the processed snacks are just to hand then the first step is like, don't buy the processed snacks, fill your house with other snacks, fill your house with snacks that have uh, Greek yogurt, fruit, vegetables, berries, sliced, you know, even sliced turkey breast, or I, you know, maybe Tony's a vegan. I don't know, but like whatever version of snacks are not processed. And then the second part to this, I think for me would be don't allow myself to get too hungry because there comes a point when I will wait a long time to eat. And then the decision I make uh, about food is kind of out of my hands and I make a decision that I don't feel good about. And so there have been times where I get so hungry that none of the healthy snacks that I bought are, are appealing any longer. And I just want some dose of calories to get into my system as fast as possible, you know, and I, and I will leave and go and do something I don't feel great about. And so I have these rules, like I want 
protein to be a major component of anything I eat, whether it's a snack, you know, that's kind of hard if your snack is an apple to add protein. So, so that's not absolutely true. I will occasionally just eat an apple or a peach. I find, I found that I really like peaches a lot and they're less calories than an apple. So I, I, I tend to eat a lot of peaches Mm -hmm. and berries are great. And, um, so that would be really the only place a snack wouldn't have protein, but even if I'm eating like a 0% fat Greek yogurt, I'll add a scoop of protein powder to that and then maybe add a little fruit to it. Mm. Um, celery sticks. When I'm on a road trip, I'll eat celery sticks and cucumbers as a snack, just out of sheer boredom. I'm not hungry, but I'm just chomping away on these things. Boring as hell. And if you eat too much, you can actually like get uh, sores in your mouth. Uh, I've gotten sores in my mouth from eating too much celery and then I don't really want to eat anymore. So that's like a little hidden benefit to that. (laughs) But I think some separation or distance from the thing you're trying to avoid is the first step. And then the second step is if you're finding yourself in your house, getting to the point where there aren't processed snacks there and you get so discontent with whatever you have and you're going to leave, I would be willing to bet you wouldn't do that if you weren't hungry. And so the second part I would suggest is don't let yourself get that hungry. Really actively work hard on eating more frequently or, or eating more protein at your meals or whatever you have to do so that you're not getting to the point where your 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 rationale is going out the window and you're you're eating from compulsion or over hunger. Yeah. Yeah, the over hunger thing is real. Yeah, I can't go to the store. I don't like to go to the grocery store or out to a restaurant or any of these places overly hungry. I just don't I don't make good decisions. Yeah. Thank you for your question, Tony, and let us know how you do. If anyone else has a question out there you'd like Ethan to answer on the podcast, you can email us. It's hello at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.